hello, welcome. I'm Susie. This is my podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be changing things up a little bit and talking about something a little more fun, comic books, which have played a central role in my life. Um, And I think that they've actually played a central role in a lot of people's lives, even kind of without them realizing it. I mean, insofar as every sort of cultural expression seeps its way into the public consciousness um, and comic books have had a long arc and a long journey uh, in that sort of process. And I think it's really interesting um, as well as just a cool art form. Um, And there's even some debate about whether it even is an art form. Although I think the debate's over. I don't know. I feel like jury's out on that. That's just my, my take on it, but um, I'm sure there are others who disagree. So anywho, um, I have once again, a lot to say. I have a lot to say on all the things, just all the things. Um, But subsequently, I'm breaking this up into three separate parts. Again, the first part, I'm going to be talking a little bit about my own personal experience with comic books my discovery of them, what they sort of meant to me. Then in the second part, I'm going to be talking about um, some of the specific material that I like um, and the how we've seen um, an intersection right, with different um, forms of media like film and television, as well as, you know, animation and, you know, other uh, expressions that whose you know content origin is sort of from, from comic books. And then in the third part, um, I'm going to talk about the Marvel and DC, I don't know, issue? Is there an issue? I don't know. I feel like right now in, in society, there's kind of a, you know, choose your side uh, kind of situation. Like, are you Marvel? Or are you DC? I, I don't really like to pick sides, but um, I do have thoughts about both and about their respective translations into you know, contemporary mainstream culture. Uh, So that is what is in store. And I hope you'll stick around. Gonna be fun. Comics, yay! When I was probably 12 or 13 uh, was the first time I ever bought a comic book. Of course, I'd seen them, been aware of them, um, but, you know, my brother was not really, I have an older brother, he was not really into comic books, so they weren't like a big part of my life, Um, you know, and when I was growing up in the 70s, um, comic books weren't really a thing that was intended for girls, so um, there was a shopping mall, a shopping center um, that was uh, near our home that we would go to. And it was this really weird 70s shopping center, like a strip mall type of thing. And it had this little like alcove that was like set back from the, from the storefront side. And in that little alcove was a pet store um, where when my mom was shopping in boring places that I didn't care about, I would go and, you know, look in the window of the pet store and across from the pet store was a comic book store. Um, now, it's kind of hard to tell that it was a comic book store because it was just a little hole in the wall. The storefront was not really like distinguished in any meaningful way. And there was shit all over the windows and, you know, occluding the view um, inside the store. You could see it was just like poorly lit fluorescent lights. It just looked like kind of a shithole. But it was still 
compelling because of all the stuff that was in the windows and the things that were occluding your view inside. It was, you know, it sort of spoke of hidden treasures in a way, but it was also sort of forbidding and also not a little bit creepy. I mean, just a really kind of like, you know, enter here at your own risk kind of vibe, especially for a young girl. And one day I did. I decided, screw it, I'm going in there. I got to figure out what this is all about. And I got to tell you, there have been few times in my life when I have felt less welcome in an establishment as a, you know, 13-year-old girl walking into this dank little retail um, establishment crammed full of just shelves and stacks and, you know, displays and a couple of, you know, pimple-faced dudes in the corner like what is she doing here it felt very intrusive it felt like I was not welcome there (laughs) and so much so that I very nearly left but my eye was drawn to just this color and explosion of movement and energy and power and I've really just never seen anything like it and and all of the covers sort of you know in total created this just tidal wave of like electric vision that I was completely compelled by and so no amount of feeling like I was unwelcome was going to stop me from diving in there which is precisely what I did and um the first thing that really grabbed my eye to the point that I had to like grab it off the shelf was a Silver Surfer cover. It was, you know, if you're familiar at all with the Silver Surfer, um, you know, uh, trying to think of the most obvious pop culture intersection would be a really bad version in uh, a Fantastic Four movie where Lawrence Fishburne does his voice. But Silver Surfer on his home planet, he was called Norrin Rad and um, Galactus, the planet eater, came and was going to destroy his planet. And so he cut a deal with Galactus to be his herald and lead him to planets, you know, to lead him away from, you know, his own planet. And in his mind, initially, he was like, I'll just take him to like uninhabited planets. But ultimately, Galactus, um, like distorted his soul. And so he was a herald of Galactus in the truest sense. And he just would like, lead Galactus to planets inhabited or no, and he would eat them. Um, So he was, you know, he did this for a long ass time. But the interesting thing in the artwork was the Silver Surfer was imbued with um, part of Galactus's power cosmic, and it gave him this sort of chrome, you know, skin and a surfboard. That was his, you know, craft where he would, you know, he could, you know, kind of travel through space time, you know, the power cosmic was like this massive, you know, gift that made him like part of part of a god basically um and but the artwork was like if you remember the first time you saw terminator 2 <laughs> and you saw the that second terminator model you know kind of like coalesce in this you know kind of um quicksilver type of it that manifestation like it had that look to it and it was you know set in a backdrop of like a you know a space travel and here he is in his you know glorious form is traveling through these sort of you know nebulas and clouds of gases and stars and planetary planetary forms and it's just beautiful i mean just beautiful stunning artwork and i just was 
completely bowled over by it and I had to have it. So I, I bought it. Um, oh, ooh, interesting side note um, for Marvel fans out there that the um, the storyline in Ragnarok where Thor has to fight Hulk in the arena on Sakaar. I mean, spoiler alert, I guess, but, you know, you've had time. Um, it was based on a Hulk comic storyline featuring Silver Surfer prominently. He was the one who actually fought Hulk and released all of the gladiators in the, but they obviously adopted that for the Ragnarok story, but that was a silver surfer storyline. There's a lot of those, um, you know, kind of woven throughout the Marvel universe. He's in it. He dips in and out a lot of some of the major franchises. Um, so the story was really interesting to me because silver surfer was a broody motherfucker. He was just tortured. And I, you know, as a emo undiagnosed clinical depressive teenager they really spoke to me it gave me the feels I really like related to it past the artwork once I started to read the story and understand you know what what the telling was and and what what some of the you know philosophical messages that were being conveyed and it also connected me in a weird way to myself because once I saw that artwork. It happened at a time when I start I was realizing that I had some, you know, minimal artistic talent of my own, which I discovered in a really bizarre way. Um, I don't have a close relationship with uh, my father. I never have. When I was young, though, you know, he would come around every once in a while and, you know, do dad stuff with us. And one time he uh, took my brother and me on a train trip to visit his father his mother was long since dead and his father and he had a couple of living aunts and he took us up to I don't even remember where it was like Connecticut maybe I don't know but anywho we were on the train trip and sort of to while away the time um he was sort of entertaining me by he drew a picture of Tony the Tiger from a cereal box and um I was captivated because he captured it perfectly and if you think about it like it's not that difficult an image to draw but you know, it's pretty rudimentary lines. Um, but I was just like, how, what sorcery is this? Like, how did you do this? And at that point, you know, he sort of saw my interest and um, he eventually shared with me some of the sketches that he had made in med school where when they have to do classes on anatomy, they have to draw out like, you know, bones and musculatures and, and things like that. And his bones were unbelievable. I mean, they were like photographically real pencil sketches. They were just beautiful. I mean, elegantly drawn. Like it just, I was really shocked because I, at that point, I just didn't understand that my father had any redeeming qualities at all. I mean, there was a very hidden side to him to me. Um, and this was just like, I opened it, like cracked open, like this whole, like, you know, galaxy of questions, like, who are you? Um, but also, you know, and more importantly, like, who am I? Uh, you know, you've got this gift and, and I was starting to kind of feel it and see it. And, you know, it, and I think seeing it in, in my dad um, kind of gave me some kind of courage to try to do something, you know, on my own. And um, that comic book was the gateway for me. And I ended up painting a ton of different like covers and panels particularly from the Silver Surfer, but eventually it just branched into all sorts of other franchises. I like Daredevil a lot. I mean, color was a big deal for me, like um, stuff that was really like color focused 
um, like, or had a very like uh, specific palette was very, I was very visually drawn to, uh, especially in the stuff that I was like, you know, trying to interpret or reproduce. But, you know, the art of comic books led me to discovering, you know, sort of my own artistic voice and my own artistic abilities, you know, in, in that, you know, line and color and form and expression that I saw, you know, bursting forth from those pages, you know, in a comic book came bursting out of me. And that was exciting. And I, I was way better at it than I expected myself to be. Um, and so I just practiced and kept up at it. And, you know, and again, eventually, too, through that process, the stories became really compelling for me. Um, you know, I've always been a big reader. I've always loved books, I've always loved movies and stories. Um, and when I discovered comic books, like my mind exploded the stories. Oh, my God. They're just this vast catalog of impossible stories. My mom was a really big science fiction reader. So, you know, I wasn't unaccustomed to the idea of fantasy. And and obviously, I was, I'm a huge Tolkien nerd. So, you know, fantasy genres are very appealing to me because they transcend, you know, what we know. They access our imaginations in uh, really powerful ways um, and comic books I felt like just harnessed that in the coolest of ways uh, exploring things that you just didn't get to see on you know in your everyday tv or your Saturday morning cartoons or you know whatever it may be modern day myths unfolding before me and I have a passion for mythology I love it I think it says so much about us our stories tell us and I think that's very cool As my journey progressed and I um, began to consume more and more, I am a really gratuitous consumer. You guys, like when I get into something, if I, any disposable income I have goes right towards that thing without hesitation, it's so reckless. I'm not totally irresponsible. I don't want to give you the wrong impression. It's been tempered over time and, you know, I pay my bills, but, you know, especially as a youth, I mean, I, I mean, I had no money. I, you know, <laughs> I like I had, you know, odd jobs and, you know, stuff like that. I worked a lot as a teenager, but um, I didn't end up with a lot of, you know, disposable income, did not have much. So, uh, you know, comic books, fortunately, were cheap and I could buy a few of them, but I really had to be picky about what I bought. And one of the series that I was completely obsessed with and followed religiously was a series by Neil Gaiman called The Sandman. Uh, and that series influenced me more than any other series that I can think of. And the and here's an interesting, fun kind of like ridiculous anecdote about me that intersects with my lack of funds problem. Um, when I was in college, um, I had this I had a signed anthology set of the Sandman books um, that a friend had gotten for me when he went to like a comic con or something. It had my I mean, it was autographed to me by Neil Gaiman, who's like one of my all time favorite authors. And I was so desperate for money in college <laughs> that I, I ended up selling the books. They wouldn't take, they couldn't take the case. And I didn't want to part with the case because that, that's where the signature was. But I sold the books. I, I kept the little box that it came in that had Neil Gaiman's signature on it to me. But I sold the books for beer money. So, you know, A, I'm not sentimental about things. And, you know, B, 
squirrels got to get a nut, I guess. But, you know, it, there, there's there's in me been this tension of like, I want the things, I need the things, but I get this other thing that I really want right now. And so that thing that I really wanted can be sacrificed at the altar of my need for instant gratification, I guess. I don't know, whatever. I don't know what that says about me. But the stories were still with me, even if I sold the books and I knew I was going to rebuy them later. I do that a lot, buy things more than once, because, again, I'm a disgustingly gratuitous consumer. But those books were beautiful and I knew that I would buy them again. And, and so I have. The stories themselves are spectacular. I'll tell you a little bit about the author. If you're familiar with him, you know and you love him. Uh, Neil Gaiman, um, he is a, a writer who has done a ton of stuff. Uh, comics are, frankly, the least of it. He's done a ton of uh, novels, a lot of great short stories. Um, he's even done, you know, some um, audiobooks of his own stuff, which I love. Um, there have been a lot of TVs, uh, series that have spun out of his work. You know, in particular, uh, and Notables, uh, American Gods was a book, a novel that he wrote, which I love. And they later did uh, as a TV series on stars where basically it's modern day gods in America who are sort of carried like like Tinkerbell, like they only exist through people's belief. So they're sort of carried from their origin points to the new world um, and manifested in, into reality through their believers. But as, as time goes on, A, their believers, you know, old gods become extinct, basically, as people lose that belief and new gods are born as culture kind of creates more spaces of worship, you know, to like TV and radio and internet. And like these become new gods. It's a very cool story. Check it out. Uh, another one he did uh, similarly was Anansi Boys, um, uh, that taps into some really interesting African creation myths and, and, and mythologies that are super cool. Good Omens, which is one of my favorite books of all time, which he wrote with Terry Pratchett, famous for having written this enormous catalog of books based in a fantasy world he created called Discworld. Um, that series, or rather that book, Good Omens, which was later developed into a series on Amazon about the biblical apocalypse like about rapture it's just it's freaking hilarious and brilliant and beautiful and i love it so so hard if you get an opportunity please do read it one of the things that i love best about neil gaiman's work is his use of myth um like stories just like biblical stories you know old literature new literature you know mythology from across all cultures the core of the story in the sandman is that uh, it centers on dream. Um, and it basically all of this, these sort of basic manifestations of humanity are anthropomorphized into forms. Again, think Tinkerbell, I guess, you know, our, their, our, our belief in human manifestation, uh, although it's not belief, it's just, they exist, right? They're just there, they're, they're the endless. That's their name that, the, you know, and dream is dream of the endless. He's one of several siblings, including death, uh, desire, despair, destruction, who is a um, prodigal son and who sort of abandoned his role in the world. Delirium, who was once delight, but became corrupted. And she's probably one of my favorite of the endless. They're just magical characters. They, they're visually very representative of what they are. They're just complex and beautiful and also has a lot of that, you know, twisted family drama, you know, with siblings and, you know, people 
rivalries and allyships and, you know, just so cool and interesting and, and just, you know, really feckoned for a lot of cool and interesting stories because it crosses over all of these territories that are fundamental human qualities. And it's also a family. So there's that drama that spins. But one of my favorite storylines in the Sandman um, catalog is the story about Lucifer quitting hell. He just sort of decides that like this whole, you know, ephemeral plan is some bullshit and he's kind of done playing. He's done. And he walks away and he gives Dream the keys and he's like, good luck, motherfucker. And he takes off. He pieces out. Um, interesting side note, Netflix sort of developed that story of Lucifer like abandoning hell into a series um, that has been it's super cute and fun. It's not like, you know, groundbreaking television, but it is super cute and fun. So if you like that sort of thing, check it out. But the in the books, essentially, Dream is saddled with hell and all of these emissaries come from all over, you know, celestial, mythological, conceptual entities to submit their case to inherit the realm and the rule of hell. Which is so zany. Um, and they include like, again, like sort of deities or, you know, idea ideologies from all over the world, you know, Egyptian deities like Bast, Norse gods like Thor and Loki, uh, and Asian deific representations, because the Asian theologies tend not to believe in like an individual, like divine, you know, human hybrid sitch, like a lot of other <laughs> religions do. Uh, but there the deification entity is really interesting in the book. Uh, the Lords of Hell, the Elzebub and you know, uh, Azazel, you know, they are like, you know, we've been working there, bro. Like we run this place. It should be ours. Uh, chaos entities, which are far and away my favorite of, of all the emissaries. Fairies uh, sort of from the land of Fae as uh, best represented in Shakespeare's work. Um, and finally, two angels who are there to observe. So what a mad party that is. The stories are just, you know, full of intrigue and, you know, palace intrigue and, um, you know, side wait, side deals and, you know, little sabotages. It's just freaking magical, beautiful. And Lucifer, you know, has sort of, because it's a revenge on Dream, <laughs> you know, he sort of says, it's yours, buddy. You deal with it. Um, and Dream, because he's a broody, you know, I love me a broody hero. I really do. Or really more appropriately, a broody anti-hero. I love a broody anti-hero. And uh, Dream does that very well. Very, very well. His visual representation is very, you know, Robert Smith. Um, he's just so emo. I love it. It's very goth in a way, uh, but in a, in a lovable way. It's very cool. So if you like that sort of thing, highly recommend checking it out. That series of books explores some of the coolest stories in some of the most beautiful ways. The artwork, um, lots of it done by a guy named Dave McKean, who is a freaking genius, you know, are just really visually compelling. The covers are stunning and really, you know, kind of like esoteric and dreamy and ethereal. And they're just beautiful work. So I have lots of good things to say about the Sandman comics. Produced by DC. Um, actually, they were in the DC universe. Um, so, you know, that's one of the reasons I really can't pick sides. When you create something I love that hard, I, I'm not going to argue about it. Those were the, those were the ones that I loved the most in, in the beginning. And it, 
it just <laughs> spiraled off into obsession. Um, but I was not alone, interestingly enough. My obsession was culture's obsession because, you know, the more I found myself being interested in these things and wanting them and exploring them, the more I found that TV and movie was doing that as well and in new and interesting ways. And that's what I want to talk about next time. So thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. So great to have you. I hope you love it. And I hope that if you love it, you'll tell somebody about it or not. Enjoy it for yourself. That's okay too. I don't judge. It's all good. So until next time.